The children are dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. The notes are in the bulletin. You can follow along there. 2 Timothy chapter 4. It amazes me that we will be done this great epistle and done all three of the pastoral epistles in the next three weeks. And as we draw our study to a close of Paul's instructions to young Timothy and Titus. And yet in this passage, I really think we reach the pinnacle of the book. Paul's strongest, clearest, most sober charge and exhortation to young Timothy. So we're going to read and study the first five verses of 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Lord God, we just pray now that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Help us to understand, Lord, and grasp the seriousness, the weight of glory at stake in the teaching, the proclamation, and our faithful adherence to your word. Lord, we pray that your word would go forth, that it would not go forth in vain, but as the rains water the earth and and vegetation comes up, that so your word would produce much growth and fruit in our heart and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this section of the letter, Paul, all that he's been saying previously comes to a head. And if you go back in 2 Timothy, you'll remember that really starting back in verse 3, Paul has been hitting two dual themes in this letter. He's in jail. He's in prison, and he will likely die there, and he knows this. And he wants to pass the baton of ministry on to Timothy. He wants Timothy to stand in the gap to complete his course. The Apostle Paul is fast approaching the completion of his own course, but he wants Timothy to be strong and courageous to guard the deposit. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And this theme of not being ashamed of the gospel, not being ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, this spirit of power that God has given us of 1-7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, and a call for Timothy to engage in suffering, not to turn away from it. And then in chapter 2, as this comes together more suffering and the word, now this notion of false teachers is brought in, and Timothy's need to correct them. And that leads into chapter 3, with more talk and more description about the false teachers and what they teach and and what their 
desires and motives are. And, and chapter 3 ends in that amazing passage we looked at last week about the supremacy and the sufficiency of God's word. Look at 3.14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And it is only on that foundation of the sufficiency, the inerrancy, the inspiration of scripture does Paul bring this charge. Now, he's charged Timothy before in 1 Timothy. Turn over to 1 Timothy 5. This is not the first time the Apostle Paul has given a formal charge to Timothy, but I think it is the greatest. In 1 Timothy 5, as he's finishing up telling Timothy how order in the church should be conducted, how things are to run, he says this in verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So so there's at least one occasion when the Apostle Paul adjures, almost invokes an oath to charge Timothy with something. But in this instance, is even greater. And I just want you to look at all the things he brings to bear. I've, I've pointed this out before, but I can't imagine what else Paul could bring in to this oath, to this charge, to make it more solemn, to make it more binding, to, to, to show the importance of it. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. I, I don't know what else you could add to that, to make it more weighty, to give it more grandeur. And so this section I've called a leader's sacred charge. A leader's sacred charge. And I focus on that because Timothy's function is never named. Up until this point, he's primarily functioned as a proxy apostle. People often talk about young pastor Timothy, but we don't know if he was an elder or not. We don't know what his formal function was. In 1 Timothy, Timothy's letter, the letter that Paul wrote, authorizes Timothy to do things. And, and Timothy and Titus do things that I don't think any person nowadays has the authority to do. Titus, single-handedly, is tasked to appoint elders. Uh, we, we don't think that any one individual alive today in the church, other than the risen Lord, has that authority. But an apostle would, an apostle who writes scripture, who's seen the risen Lord, and, and those who an apostle in a letter authorizes to do. So Titus could do that, and Timothy could do the things that Paul tells him to do on Paul's authority. In that sense, I've referred to him as a proxy apostle. But here, here that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing rather Timothy in his own right being a leader in the church. We don't know. You can guess he probably was an elder, probably was a pastor teacher. He was certainly a leader of some sort, a teaching leader. And we see this passing of the baton because after this charge is done, look at verse 6. Paul sees that he is leaving the scene. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, 
the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, whereas in previous cases, Paul has written for Timothy and Titus to do things that Paul himself would do if he were present, here Paul is instructing Timothy to do things when he is gone, when he is dead and buried. And so a leader's sacred charge. The seminary that I went to, the master's seminary, had etched in stone in the, in the foyer of the seminary building those words, preach the word. It is a sacred task, a sacred calling, and so we're going to look at a leader's sacred charge in four points. First, in the first verse, the priority of the charge. The priority of of the charge. And in verse 1, we don't know what the content is. We just know it's serious. We just know it's a big deal. And let's just look at this. I want you to see what, what Paul stacks up for Timothy and how these, these items that he stacks up are meant to help him see the weight of things. And this, in many senses, is a formal oath. All officers of the uh, seven uniformed services of the United States swear or affirm an oath of office upon commissioning. There are many things. Marriage involves an oath. Many, many things involve an oath. And, and the person taking the oath recites and swears by God to, to do the task entrusted to them. I have here the text for the uh, service oath, and it says, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office of which I am about to enter, so help me God. And, and you can think of the various offices that involve an oath of commissioning, and this is very similar, except more important than any earthly office in the military or in the political government is what Paul is entrusting Timothy with and, and what he is likewise entrusting church leadership with throughout the ages. Human governments come and go, but the word of God remains forever. Human countries come and go, but the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the living God. And so the work that is done here, the work that is done within the church is of far greater significance and importance than any issues going on in Crimea, any councils, world councils, all, all human culture is, is dust in the scales, but the bride of Christ and his word will endure. So we look at the priority. First is in the presence of God, in the presence of God. And what Paul wants to remind Timothy of is that he lives in the presence of the living God. It's often easy as we conduct ourselves to be very well aware of others evaluating us. We talk of the fear of man, talk about peer pressure. And that's the awareness that we all have, that unless you live in a cave somewhere, there are others who see you. There are others who will evaluate you. They will form opinions of you. The words of their mouth may praise you and lift you up. They may dash you down. Paul wants Timothy to be aware of the fact that he lives, and all of us as well live, in the presence of the living God. And if we remembered that, I think the fear of man would become a much, much smaller issue. If we remember that every one of us is living our lives in front of eternity, at any moment we could enter eternity, at any moment we could stand before the living God and the risen Christ, we all live in the presence of eternity. 
Every deed, every word, every action is, is, will be given an account for, which is where he moves into the next point, the presence of Christ. And he gives three qualifiers to add to that. As if it weren't enough to remind Timothy, to remind you, to remind me. We live our lives every moment, every thought in the presence and the knowledge of the omniscient, omnipresent living God and the risen Christ. But that's not enough. Paul doesn't end there. He adds in, Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. And here he's bringing in this notion in the blank, there is accountability. There will be a reckoning. And for those of us who, by faith in Jesus Christ, will, will not be judged at the throne of God's judgment for heaven and hell, we, we will escape that judgment. There will be the judgment seat of Christ. There still will be a judgment of our works and our deeds, not for salvation, but still a very serious judgment. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. Paul knew this fear, this concern of judgment, that he would give an account for how he conducted his ministry. So he says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim always to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I want you to know that there's a, there's a number of motivations that the Bible puts forward that are valid for obedience. And fear of God is completely valid motivation. Paul says, I'm afraid of giving an account. I'm afraid of messing up. I'm afraid of that. I take that judgment seriously. And so knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, that's not the only reason we obey. We'll see some others. But sometimes in a pinch, fear Fear of what God will do, fear of, of God's discipline is a sufficient motive to keep us from sin, to keep us being faithful. And Paul brings that forward. Remember, Timothy, you live your life in front of the watchful eyes of the living God and the risen Christ. And that risen Christ will judge the living and the dead. There will be accountability. Second, by his appearing, his parousia, which is imminent at any moment, and again, if you can keep this in mind, if you can keep in mind that you live your life in the presence of an omniscient, all-powerful, all-present God, and if you can keep in mind that that God will give a reckoning for everything you do, that you and I must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and that he may appear at any moment. Now, that notion of his appearing here is the notion of reward, that becomes clear if you look a little further forward where Paul picks that same theme up again in verse 8, talking about his own imminent departure. He says, Henceforth for me, there is laid up the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved, and there it is, his appearing. So when Paul thinks of the appearing of Christ, it's not dread that's in his heart, but joy. We sang that, especially music, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, what joy shall fill my heart. Because when Christ comes, we get the reward of having him. We get to be with him and see him and, and know him. And that's when he will give us our rewards. Paul looking to that crown of life, which is laid up for him. So the first motivation attached with Christ is his judgment, second, his appearing, which is reward, and the third, by his kingdom. And here, 
It's the notion, I think, of confidence. So we've got accountability, reward, and confidence. And the reason why I say that is this. This world will pass away. This worldly dispensation, this time, this ordering of things will, will be gone. As hard as, as it is for us to imagine that, and we get so caught up in the politics and the events of the day and how important they are, and it is important, it's, it's vapor compared to eternity. And Christ will usher in a kingdom. He will reign. And down in, in verse, chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says this in reference to that kingdom, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul is saying this in the context of facing death. And so the reason why I say confidence is this. Paul is in prison. He is facing a death sentence. Church history tells us that he will in fact be beheaded. He will in fact die shortly after writing this letter. That doesn't shake Paul. You you can take his life. You can lock him up in a prison cell. He's going to inherit the kingdom. The Lord will deliver him safely into that kingdom. It's sure. And there's a confidence that comes with that. And so to, 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 to recap all of this, Paul is, is heading up this commission, this oath, this charge to Timothy by reminding him, Timothy, you and I and every one of us live every moment of our lives directly in front of, in the presence of a living God who pays attention, who knows all the thoughts and our actions, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus, don't forget, Timothy, he, we're all going to stand before his judgment seat. We're all going to give an account. We're all going to receive a reward. Don't forget that, Timothy, as you, as you conduct yourself. Don't forget that, church, as we live our lives this week. And don't forget that he could appear at any moment. At any moment, the Lord could arrive. And then that gives us a hope. And he could come with reward to claim his bride. And Timothy, have confidence because he will institute his kingdom and we will reign with him in that kingdom. And with all of that, Timothy, he's about to turn to the content of the charge. But to sort of sum it up, best, I think, is summed up in a stanza of a poem by the um, English missionary C.T. Studd, who was one of the Cambridge Seven. He was born December 2nd, 1880. He was a missionary to China. And you'll, you'll know these lines. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will be its fleeting hours done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I think that's a, a fair summary of what Paul is wanting to get in Timothy's mind before entering into the formal charge. Now we'll move to the second point, from the priority of the charge to the content of the charge. And now we begin a a series of nine imperatives, nine commands from the apostle. The first is the one that was etched in stone that I saw every day at seminary. Preach the word. Preach the word. Now, the word preach in our context is usually only used in religious contexts. It's, it's a word that sort of has that churchy feel to it. You don't hear preaching very often outside of the pulpit, but the word means to proclaim. That's the blank there. It's proclamation, announcement, to herald, if you will. 
And, and it's, it's to announce and proclaim something. And God's word, first and foremost, is to be heralded. And th- this is a freeing thing for us because God doesn't need defense attorneys. I'm glad we have apologists who have debates with unbelievers. But God's word simply needs to be announced. It needs to be heralded. Um, as John MacArthur has said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't need to defend a lion. Just let him out of the cage. He'll take care of himself. And God's word is a sharp two-edged sword. It will not return void. It has power. It is living and active. And what he needs from us is simply to announce it, to declare it, to herald it. It's a freeing, freeing task. Usually this word for preach, actually, we connect preach with the pulpit. More often, heralding is connected with evangelism and outreach. In fact, the only other time preach occurs in the pastoral epistles is in 1 Timothy 3.16 where he has that hymn of the faith and he talks about Christ who is testified by angels and proclaimed among the nations to announce, to herald. God's word needs to be proclaimed. First and foremost, announced. See, God doesn't put upon us primarily the job of convincing coming up with credible reasons. It's simply enough to say, this is what the Bible says. This is what the living God says. This, this is what God says to you. This is what he says to me. And, and his spirit and his power takes it from there. Preach the word. Notice the sensuality. What does the church need? What do all people need? They need God's word announced to them, proclaimed to them. We need to do this to each other, to ourselves. Speaking announcing, heralding God's word. What is evangelism but announcing a message to people? What I'm doing right now, announcing, declaring what God has said. And and Paul tells Timothy to be ready to accomplish this task at any time. That phrase translated there, being ready, is really being looking for an opportunity. Um, The passage in Mark 14, 11, where Judas betrays Jesus, has the same exact construction with the same idea. When the Pharisees heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And from then on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And that notion of Judas looking for the opportunity. He's looking for the available, where can I do this? How can I get it done? That's what Paul is telling Timothy here. Preach the word. Be looking for a ready opportunity. Be looking for that place where you can speak God's word into a situation. Be ready to accomplish that task. And I think that's half the challenge. If you've ever worried about witnessing to your friends, to your coworkers, if you can just get your heart to a place where you're saying, Lord, give me open eyes so I can see those opportunities. Let me see where I can, where there's a, where there's a moment, a teachable moment. I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to be quarrelsome. But if there is an opportunity to let light shine in, to speak your word, help me to see it. If you're looking for it, I think pretty much everything else will take care of itself. And then he follows it up with in season and out of season. I've heard it said, and this is something you can take comfort in. I think I can say with certainty. At any given time, it is either in season or out of season, right? So this is, in one sense, a way of saying all the time. Literally, what the in season and out of season mean, seasonably or unseasonably, 
it's either a reference to Timothy when it's convenient for you or when it's inconvenient for you, or it's a reference to his hearers when it's convenient for them or inconvenient for them. But either way, the concept is this. There will be times, there will be seasons, there will be occasions where it is acceptable. Sunday morning in a church, no one's putting up protests. In our context, at least, this is welcomed. There are other churches, other places in the world where it is out of season. There may be places in friendships and families at work where, where it's not as conducive. And Paul's saying, look for those opportunities. I don't care whether it's convenient for you or not. I don't, it doesn't matter what the context and the reception is. When there's a moment, when there's an opportunity, when it's time, announce truth. Preach the word in season and out of season. And second is teach the word. Teach the word. In the blank there is education. So you got proclamation, we got education. And what follows those three words, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, all some of this teaching notion. But before we look at that, I want you to jump over to, and I, I mistyped the blank there, it's Nehemiah 8. Turn over to Nehemiah 8. Just, just go to Job Psalms and go back a book. Nehemiah chapter 8. Because we see both these notions of proclamation and education coming together here. And what I think is probably the first pulpit in the Bible. The situation is Israel has returned from captivity in Babylon where they've been for 70 years. And many people have forgotten the law, forgotten God's word. And, and Ezra the scribe brings together the people to read to them from the law of God. And there's, a, there's an aspect of this which is purely announcing and heralding, and then there's a teaching aspect as well. Nehemiah 8, let's pick it up in verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for the purpose. Beside him stood Mattatiah and Shema and Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah on the right hand, and Pedadiah, Mishael, Malkajan, Hashum, Hashbadanana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Helit, Heliti. You guys think Zadok strange. Um, <laughs> Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. You can turn back now to, to 2 Timothy. But so, so what happened in that gathering? Ezra read to, to, this, to the congregation, to the assembly. He read probably minimum the book of Deuteronomy. So if you think our services take a long time, you're not in the hot sun. You're not standing. Um, you're, you're doing okay. You're doing okay. And then... Phase two is the explanation. There's a reading, and then there's explanation. God's world is announced and heralded, but especially among those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, there, there, there needs to be a, 
and education. To the unbeliever, we announce, we appeal, but really the Holy Spirit alone is the one who's going to make them accept and receive the gospel, to believe. The Holy Spirit alone can testify to the authority of God's word, but to those who have the Spirit, we reprove, we rebuke, we exhort. That word for reprove is the same word that is used of Scripture's powerful usefulness in in verse 16 of chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof. It's the notion of rebuke, challenge, turning around. He wants Timothy to herald God's word, but he wants, in certain instances, to rebuke with God's word. And then to rebuke, which could be translated as warn. And these aren't warm and fuzzy things. We've read in the letter the false teaching, what's going on, and there are times where leaders in the church will need to be called upon to rebuke, to warn, and then finally to exhort, which can mean to encourage, it can mean to appeal. It's the word we get the paraclete, the comforter from, which Jesus calls the Holy Spirit in John. So, so Timothy is to preach and announce the word, is to teach the word in, in rebuking and correcting and exhorting. These, are, again, are all similar words that have heard again and again throughout the pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy 5.20, As for the elder who persists in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Or Titus 1.9, describing the qualifications of an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's an authority that comes with wielding the word of God. It's not an authority that I have, it's the authority the word has. And, and Paul is comment, calling on Timothy to, and I think likewise all leaders in the church to, to wield it with authority, not timidly, certainly not brashly. We'll get to that in a minute, but there's an authority there. Or 2.15 of 1 Timothy. Um, no, no, sorry, not 2.15, 2 Timothy 2.15, where he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Notice the emphasis in these letters on Timothy teaching, rebuking, correcting, handling God's word accurately, and the role the word of God has to play in the church. And he's to do this in complete patience in teaching. And that, of course, is the balancing act, right? Um, rebuke, correct. Do it patiently, do it gently. I mean, it's, it's a tough balance, because you've got, on the other hand, Second, I'm sorry, Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So on the one hand, there, there is an authoritative, absolute, direct correcting, and there's patience, and there's teaching. And by the grace of God, we, we pray that he gives us the wisdom to do that. It's right to do that. Um, the, the notion of people need to be taught, people need patience, people need time. And Timothy, on the one hand, is to teach with authority, to teach clearly, to confront sin, to confront error, and he is to be patient, and he is to teach. That is the content of the charge. Next, in verses 3 to 4, we see the urgency of the charge. We've seen the priority, the content, now the urgency. Why is this so needed and so important? 
We've just seen that difficult, that we've just seen that he is to be ready in season and out of season. And, and literally, verse 3, what the ESV says, for the time is coming, is literally a season is coming. A season is coming. A difficult season is coming. A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The urgency of the, of the charge. A difficult season is coming. Paul's already warned Timothy of this. If you go back to chapter 3, he starts in a similar way. But understand this, that in the last days there will come difficult times, difficult seasons. Difficult seasons are always coming. And to some degree, they're always here. The, the difficulty changes. But Paul, coining a phrase that we're not aware of anywhere else, is itching ears. It's memorable. Give us a picture of the problem. Here he's not looking at the teachers, but those who want to hear the teaching. He's looking at the body. Itching ears and felt needs. The problem is they will turn away. They will not endure listening to sound teaching, healthy teaching, but with itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, needs, desires. The picture is this. I have ears that itch. I want to hear what I want to hear. And if you're not going to tell me what I want to hear, then I will find for myself, I will accumulate for myself, I'll store up somebody who will tell me what I want to hear, somebody who will speak to my desires, tell me what I want to hear. And this can be as bad as heresy and false teaching, or it can be the much more subtle danger that I think in the, in the West and in America we can be in danger of, which is, can, can you just teach those parts of the Bible that make me feel good? Can you, can you just teach those parts of the Bible that, that are happy? Can we not teach those parts of the Bible that are difficult, that are challenging? I don't, I don't want to hear that. My ears are itching for the, for the happy parts. And as this, I think, is the danger that far more faces us, is far more closer to home. It's what I'll spend just a few minutes talking about. Um, a few years ago, um, a book came out, The Purpose Driven Church, and the basic thesis for how to grow a church, this was the seminal book that was behind the church growth movement, was if you want to grow a church, go pull the community, find out what people are interested in, and, and, and give them sermons on that. Find their felt needs. And give them sermons on that, and they'll, it'll grow. And in a sense, it's true, it will grow. The problem is, most people, especially unbelievers, are not aware of what their true needs are. And we run around thinking that our big need is a promotion, um, a more fulfilled romantic life, um, self-actualization. Your biggest need is Christ. Your, your biggest need is a growing sense of his holiness and greatness and a growing sense of your sinfulness and unworthiness. That's your biggest need. We, we sang it earlier today. There's no higher calling than being down, broken, contrite at the, at the foot of the throne. And so if you end up teaching and preaching simply to what people's felt needs are, and it doesn't have to be error. It can just be you know, an unending series of five tips to a better marriage, six tips to better teen, seven... And, and there can be a place for that. But there are churches where that is the main bill of fare. Just find out what people want, what their felt needs are, what they think they need, and just give them that. Mark Dever um, says this in response to that in his book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. The exaggerated half-truth about the church's needs 
um, breeds unintended consequences. Just as church growth's modern passion for relevance will become its road to irrelevance, so its modern passion for felt needs will turn the church into an echo chamber of fashionable needs that drown out the one voice that addresses real human need. After all, if true needs are a first step towards faith and prayer, false needs then are the opposite. You see, not many people, if you meet them on the street, if you said, you know, what do you need? I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need grace and mercy. If that's what you need, if you know that, then you are aware of your true needs. But especially in a wealthy country like America, where you're not even going to get on that list, I need food, I need clothing, I need shelter, which the Bible at least could recognize as a valid need. Most of us don't need to pray for those things. We get them freely. And so we've got a whole new list of, of needs, which really are just desires. Let's be honest. They're not needs, they're desires. And things that we want that are not necessarily in and of themselves good or bad, but they're not needs, and they can so blind our need for Christ. And so there's, there's always a danger of that. I'll quote another guy. This is actually a Methodist bishop said this. I was stunned. Um, Jesus doesn't meet our needs. He rearranges them. He cares very little about most things that I assume are my needs. And he gives me needs I would have never known if I hadn't met Jesus he reorders them. That was William H. Willimon, Bishop of the United States Methodist Church since 2004. Jesus reorders our needs. I mean, it wasn't until I opened my Bible that I found out my need for God's grace. It's God's word that tells us our need for each other. So many of us are hardwired for independence, individuality. You read God's word. No, apparently I need these people. I need this church. I need a church family. I guess that's something I need too. And I need to be in the word. And I need accountability. And I need people praying for me. These are all things I need that I did not know I needed until I came to God's word. And so Paul wants Timothy, get the contrast. Preach the word. Not, not any one part of the word. The word. In season and out. Because there's going to be a time when people are just going to want to hear certain things. Which again is one of the reasons why I'm so glad we're committed here to just preaching through books of the Bible. We'll stop and do a series, but the, the meat and fare, the, the norm here is going book by book through the Bible. So you don't get to pick which points you're going to highlight and which points you're going to dodge. You get to a hard passage, you get to a hard passage, and then you assign it to Daniel. Um, <laughs> I learned that trick from Gary, okay? Um, <laughs> Hey, Jeremy, guess what? It's Christmas. You're preaching. Romans 7. All right. Um, oh, people with itching ears. One last thing I want to note here that's, that's remarkable. And really, none of the English translations bring this out, which is a shame. But if you know the difference between active verbs and passive verbs, active verbs are things the person doing the verb does. Tom hit the ball. Tom did some hitting, right? Tom hit the ball. Tom was hit by the ball. Tom isn't doing anything. Things are being done to him. He is being hit by the ball. You get that active verb, passive verb? Okay. Here in verse um, 4, they will turn away from listening to the truth. Active verb. So these people with itching ears, they will actively, they will participate in turning away 
falling away from the truth. But what none of the, for some reason, what none of the English Bibles bring out is that the next one is passive. And they will be turned. They will be turned away into myths. And it's a profound point. You know, we have a desire to be sophisticated, controlled sinners. But once we let go of that lifeline to truth, we don't get to decide what lies we're going to believe. Once you, it's your choice whether to hold on to truth or not. That's your choice. You can hold on to the truth or you can let go of the truth. Once you let go of the truth, you are a sitting duck for error. You don't get to decide what lies you're going to believe. Tur- turn over to, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Where this point is made emphatically. These poor people in the church are turning away from the truth and being turned aside to myths. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deceptions for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Did you get that? God is angry that these people didn't love the truth. His judgment on their failure to love the truth is he sends the delusion. Catch that? For those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Once, once you let go of the truth, you are a sitting duck for all types of error, all, all types of confusion. You know, it's a lie that we tell ourselves that I'll wander away, but I'll find my way back. Without God's grace, no, you won't. No, you won't. They turn away from the truth and they are turned aside to myths. Finally, fourth point, the extent of the charge. The extent of the charge. We've seen the priority, the content, the urgency, and now the extent. And here we get some more imperatives sort of stacking up In verse 5, chapter 4. As for you, in contrast to these people with itching ears, these people who turn away from the truth, these people who just want to hear what they want to hear, as for you, we get the mindset, the cost, the scope, and the goal. Mindset. Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Always sober-minded. We live in a day where oftentimes jocularity triteness, humor is raised to a level of importance. It's not on the biblical qualifications list for an elder. Sober-minded is. And that doesn't mean you constantly have a scowl and look like you get baptized in lemon juice. But um, there's a certain gravity. I mean, go back. Just, just remember this. You're living your life in front of the living God. You're constantly aware of, I am living in front of Jesus Christ, who is watching me, who will judge me, who could appear at any moment. And the time for, 
is over when you get that, right? There's a seriousness. There's a weight that keeps you grounded. I have fun. I enjoy having fun. But I hope I'm serious in my thinking. And you should expect that if you're leaders. And there are churches that, 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 isn't this wonderful? Our people are so light and so casual. And no, that's not wonderful. There's a war on. There's an enemy. The truth is at stake. People are perishing and going to hell every day. Be sober-minded. You're not going to see those opportunities to pronounce truth if you're not being sober-minded. Be sober-minded. That's the mindset that this is going to require. Second, the cost. Endure sufferings. Man, Paul has said it again and again and again in this letter. And here he says it one more time. Be willing to suffer. You know, you you can connect the dots, can't you? If, If he's going to obey Paul and it's in one of those unseasonable times, he's not going to be very popular. He's not going to get much affirmation. There's going to be suffering. I'll tell you the good news. We've, we've looked at all the times Paul has told Timothy to suffer. The good news is Scripture tells us Timothy did that. He suffered well. T- turn over to Hebrews 13. Briefly. Hebrews 13. Timothy obeyed this instruction. He was strengthened by this word. And, then, and it was almost like a, th- a throwaway aside that I had missed and only hit this week. Can't believe I've missed. Get this in Hebrews 13, 23. You should know, writes the author of Hebrews, that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Timothy was arrested, and Timothy stayed the course, and Timothy remained faithful, and he was released. God delivered him. So all apparently of Paul's warnings and encouragements, Timothy, be ready to suffer. Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't shirk away. Join with me in suffering. Well, Timothy does exactly that. Good for him. The Apostle Paul's warnings and encouragements were effective. God used them, strengthened Timothy, and Timothy endured without compromise, arrest, and imprisonment. He endured sufferings, which of course... The question then for us is, will we? Or will we run from them? So that's the cost. Next, the scope. It's interesting. He says here, do the work of an evangelist. It's not sure whether he's indicating that this was Timothy's gift or that this wasn't Timothy's gift. Um, we're not entirely sure what to make of this. Do the work of an evangelist. What is interesting, though, is the work of an evangelist is apparently separate from what he's charged him with already. He tells him, preach the word, teach the word, do the work of an evangelist. Uh, I don't think they're totally separate, but Christ in Ephesians 4.11 has given the church first apostles, prophets, the evangelists. If it's not an office in the church, it's certainly particular people gifted this way. Um, And the work of the ministry will include evangelism. The work of the ministry will include evangelism. Um, With frequency, the gospel is announced from this pulpit. Um, And hopefully in our lives, in our day-to-day bearings, as with our neighbors and unbelievers, in our homes, in our work, on the street, the gospel is on our lips. Do the work of an evangelist. There are some 
who I think anyone who knows Pastor Joel knows he has the gift of evangelism. There's some who have that gift, and there's some who do the work of an evangelist. And all of us are called to participate in that work, whether we have that gift or not, to announce the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins by faith in his name. Be ready in season and out. And finally, the goal. The goal. Fulfill your ministry. God has ministry picked out for every single one of you. The word ministry just means service. Just means service. It gets all sanctified sounding. It's ministry. It's service. It's work. And God has work and service for every one of you. You've been gifted and equipped. He's given gifts in the body. The leadership here is to equip the saints, remember, for the work of the ministry. It's the saints who do the work of the ministry. That that's all of ours. It's not the elders and mine. It's everyone has the work of the ministry. And what's, what's awesome here is Paul has fulfilled his. We read those words. We'll look at them again. Four, six through eight. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul has fulfilled his ministry. I mean, that's the thing that I, I want to be an old, old um, pastor who, who can say this. Or if the Lord comes sooner or brings me home sooner, I want, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, to have fulfilled my service, what the Lord apportioned for me. And understand, every one of us, not just pastors and teachers, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us has ministry and work the Lord wants us doing. We need to set this goal before our eyes. Paul says, Timothy, I've done it. I've completed the course. I've kept the faith. Timothy, you need to fulfill the work the Lord has for you. And the last time we see him there in Hebrews, he's doing exactly that. And so this is a leader's sacred charge, but it's a charge for us as well to fulfill our ministries, to remain faithful in season and out, to cleave to the word of God. And we're gonna close now with a final song centering around that gospel message. It's called the gospel song, and if you would stand, we will now close with the gospel song.